Welcome to You Can Win in Court. Sometimes it's not enough to be innocent. The legal system is complex, and occasionally the innocent are wrongly accused. Here we will discuss in layman's terms the nuances from real court cases to provide insights on how you can best prepare to get a fair chance in court. And now, please welcome your host, Dr. Petra Dieter. Welcome, and today we're going to be talking about, unfortunately, a topic that is uh, a little bit depressing. It's, uh, it's about wrongful death. And we have with us today, Paul Samako. Paul is a, is a 40 years veteran lawyer, and he's also a, a longtime entrepreneur as well as a, uh, an author. Is that right? Hi, Paul. Hi, thank you for having me. So much, uh, such an honor. Please tell us a little bit about yourself. I mean, you, you seem to be doing a lot of things. I like to keep busy. Um, I am an attorney now, 40 years. I'm practicing in Maryland and Virginia. Um, I'm an author of five books. I'm an entrepreneur. I have a few other businesses that I run. I'm an attorney first and foremost. And, uh, you know, I love what I do. And I help lots of people one by one and their families. So let's talk about um, the topic of the day, which is wrongful death. Um, well, um, what, what kind of situation that causes? Like, are we talking about workplace situation? What, what are we talking about? Well, sure. I mean, you know, um, I actually got a phone call a couple days ago where a woman called me and um, her mother died of cancer. And she had been suffering with cancer for many years. And the woman's mother died in her home. And so the woman mistakenly had the belief that since she died in her home, that she might be able to get compensation from the homeowner's insurance. And I pointed out to her that unfortunately, no, um, the, the, the legal area of wrongful death provides compensation in a couple of different ways, but you must establish that, you know, the word is negligence. Somebody did something wrong. So if you are in a doctor's care and they are not giving you proper medical care and a result, as a result, you die, your family members, your survivors might have a claim for medical malpractice. If you're in an automobile collision and that automobile collision causes your death, then you have a claim for negligence, which you can make against insurance companies for the person that was driving the car that caused the accident. If you're injured on the workplace, you know, let's just say you're working high up in some building and you fall, um, Workers' compensation is a system here in the United States that doesn't look to fault, but if you're injured or, heaven forbid, you should die because of performing work duties, there's a system called workers' compensation where you can make a claim, the survivors, the beneficiaries of the family, whatever, can make a claim in a workers' compensation type of environment where they would be allowed to recover mostly the the wages that that individual would have earned for the rest of their natural work life. I see. And so when we so, get into, oh, go, um, please go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah. So what about nursing home situation? I, I oh, imagine yeah. there would be that kind of. Absolutely. I've handled many nursing home cases involving people who have died because of the neglect of the nursing home staff. So again, that's considered medical malpractice. So the key element here is some kind of negligence. Yes, absolutely. 
Yes, except in, except in a workers' comp. I'm sorry? Okay, you said except in the workers' comp case. Yes. How, how is now, that different? Now, yeah. Well, okay. So let me give you an example. Let's suppose you're a, a worker and you're on your job site and you're someone who's working on a tall building and somehow you fall off or a, another coworker did something wrong that made you fall and you die. That is what we call 100% workers' compensation. And within each state, there are different compensation schedules that primarily are based on what the wages would have been throughout that individual's remaining work life. So it's not about negligence or fault. It's just simply you're doing your job, something bad happened, and the family gets money to compensate for the loss of the income that would have been brought to them if that worker had remained alive and continued working. Now let's suppose you're in an automobile accident and somebody causes your death. Then it's about fault. Then you can recover compensation for any number of things which I can go into in just a moment or two. But let's suppose that you're a delivery person. The classic is a pizza delivery guy, right? He is going from the pizza delivery, uh, the pizza store to the home of people who have just ordered a pizza. He's delivering the pizza. And an automobile accident happens caused by somebody else and the individual pizza delivery person is killed. So in this instance, that person actually has two claims. He has a worker's compensation claim because he was working, but he also has a claim against the at-fault driver in the automobile collision. So most cases that we see are involving fault. They're involving somebody did something wrong or somebody didn't do something that they should have. Okay, I had a case many years ago where a gentleman died because the gas company um, failed to turn off a specific gas line and the gentleman died in his sleep because of the infiltration of gas in his home. Wow. Horrible situation. But the negligence was the, the, the failure to turn off the gas line. I see. So how would you go about and prove this? Well, in which type of situation? I mean, you know, again, an auto accident, typically there's police that investigate the gas line, you know, yeah. um, when they came into the house and found them, the gas was still on. Um, yeah. What medical about, let's say medical, yeah. Right. Well, um, you know, I mean, people have died in hospitals and, you know, as a result of surgeries where they shouldn't. And it takes other expert witnesses, another doctor, let's just suppose, to come in and testify that the first doctor did something wrong. So you find proof in a lot of different places, but typically with medical negligence or medical malpractice cases, there's something in, in the law that is called the standard of care. So let me give you an example. Let's suppose you go to your family foot doctor and you complain that you have a hangnail on your big toe. It really hurts. And the doctor comes in with a little, a little tool, the purpose of which is to clip the hangnail for you, right? And during that time, the doctor accidentally slips and, you know, touches some uh, blood vessel and you're bleeding all over the place. 
that's not really going to be negligence, medical negligence. That's a, middle, that's a mistake made by the doctor, but the doctor did not fall below the standard of care. Now, let's suppose that same foot doctor comes in and instead of the little tool to clip the hangnail out of your big toe, he brings in hedge clippers, which you use to cut the grass. And he's, all right, here we go, when he cuts your toe off. There is no other foot doctor that would come in to get a hangnail and use hedge clippers. So that's below the standard of care. And typically that's the biggest issue. Everybody typically in medical malpractice cases agrees that yes, there was a mistake. The question is, did it fall below the standard of care? And that's where the expert for the person who has died would say that they did something that was really below the standard and then the defense doctor will hire their own experts and say, no, he, what he did was fine, just a little mistake. And so that's typically the battle in these types of medical negligence cases. So when it comes to medical malpractice, um, the fault situation that you mentioned about the car accident is not, is not applying here. Is that right? That's correct. Um, in a car accident case, it's simple negligence. Oops, I wasn't paying attention. I looked at my phone because I got a text message and oh my goodness, I ran into the guy who was stopped at a red light. I don't need an expert for that. There's no debate as to whether the driver was doing what he or she should have done. He wasn't paying attention for whatever he, he can make up any story that he wants. You know, he can say that a bee flew into the, uh, into the car and he was worried about the bee but he still hit the guy in front of him. We know that it's his fault. In a medical negligence case, we have to prove number one, they did something wrong. And number two, that it fell below again, what we call the standard of care that would normally be given by a doctor in the same area of medical practice. So if I have a heart surgeon that's doing heart surgery on me, and I think that the heart surgeon did something wrong I'm not going to bring in a chiropractor to tell us that the heart doctor did something wrong. It has to be another heart surgeon. Does that make sense? So, yeah, yeah, it does. So for a families that have lost um, a loved one and in, you know, in let's say a surgery or some kind of medical treatment, it, how, how would they, know if they actually have a case or not because we won't know until we have brought in these expert witnesses which is i assume is a long process and it it's expensive and you're already in the middle of a case right well that's an excellent question very very good question very intelligent thank you for asking that with medical negligence cases or medical malpractice cases typically what will happen is you know you'll have the family member who you know is having some medical issues and is going in for some surgical procedure. And they talk to the doctor before and the doctor says, oh, this is routine and there shouldn't be any problems. And then you get a bad result. Not every medical mistake is medical malpractice, but now we have a bad result. So what ends up happening is there is an investigation. We as the attorney get all the medical records, everything. And we have those reviewed by another expert doctor in that same field who will give us an opinion that,
based on what these records say, they should have done this, but they did that. And we developed the case in that fashion. So those cases, yes, they do take a while. It's not always 100% clear. I mean, you know, for every 10 people, every 10, every 50 people that make inquiry of my office, if I feel like it's something that has some possibility, I'll investigate. And when we investigate, probably 80% of them turn out to be, gee, I'm really sorry, but there's not proof enough that we can really do something for you here. And a lot of times people, you know, will go to a second lawyer to get another opinion. And I think that's a sensational idea. I don't have an ego with that kind of thing. I give an opinion based on my knowledge and experience and based on what my trusted experts will tell me. But it's just like a medical condition, you know, if the first doctor doesn't satisfy you, go to another doctor and see what he or she says. So these cases are difficult cases and they require investigation. Uh, and when we do find that there is something there, then, you know, hopefully we're able to get a good result to compensate the family for the loss of their loved one. So uh, is this investigation being done before a lawsuit is filed or you already yes. have to file first? Oh, no, no, no. It's done before the lawsuit is filed. Absolutely. How would you subpoena the record before you have a case? You don't subpoena them. The family member who is appointed as the executor of the state or the personal representative of the estate of the one who has passed, they sign what is called a medical authorization or release. And you just, you, you just put that, um, you, you just simply put that release in the mail uh, with a letter requesting the records and they are required by law to send you all the records. I see. Okay. So you've done the investigation before you decide if there, there was a case. Right. So, so let's say you go to court and you have done the investigation and you found that there was something that, that you believe that you have a case that the doctor should have done, but is, but yet they didn't and they below the standard of care. Um, I, I imagine it's not a done deal case, right? You still go into court, then there could be still surprises. What would be oh, the kind of surprises? Yeah. Absolutely. Well, as an example, um, you know, the medical records are good evidence and good proof of many things, but there's always other things that, you know, you may not know about because, um, you know, the family members just maybe didn't know something was important and never told you that might influence a decision as to what happened. And the defense lawyers or the insurance companies for the doctors who we think did something wrong, you know, they have investigators and maybe they found it. So that's one thing. Um, you know, you can get to court and you could find that the expert witness for the defense who says the doctor didn't do anything below the standard of care could be very charming and very convincing. And the plaintiff's doctor expert witness could possibly not present in an effective way. So even though you might be right, what happens in the courtroom more often than not is about how the evidence is presented, who the jurors are that are going to decide you know, again, there's a whole process of selecting jurors in a courtroom to decide cases. So as an example, if I had a criminal case and there was five people on the jury who were police officers, 
chances are, no matter what the evidence are, they think the guy's guilty. Right. So on the other hand, if I had a, a jury panel made up of all ex-felons who all think that they were innocent, no matter what the proof is, they're going to find the guy not guilty. So when you go into a courtroom and you have a trial, it's a process that is not an exacting one where you have to, you know, uh, in some jurisdictions you're allowed to interview and ask questions of the potential jurors. And in other cases, the court selects them, you know, depending upon what state. But again, there's, there's many, many, many things that can end up with a result that is either very good or you know, not so much or very bad. You know, just because you think it's true, it may be true, but you still got to prove it. And you've got to convince people of it. And this is always a jury case? Most of the time, these are juries, yes. Yeah. And the reason for that is that on the one side, the, the family making the claim, we call them, of course, the plaintiff, they want a jury because if they win, they would expect in most cases that the amount of money that would be recovered would be a lot more than a judge uh, might award them. And if you're the defendant, you want a jury because you believe that your lawyer is skilled and very convincing and he can convince the jury, but he might feel like he would not be able to pull the wool over a judge's eyes. So everybody has an incentive most of the time for a jury. I see. And then you mentioned that you go to court and it's possible that the other side have found information or evidence that you didn't know. I thought that there would be a discovery period before the trial for you to find out whatever that they are about to present, no? Oh, absolutely. But that doesn't mean you get all the information. I'll share a case with you that I had many, many, many years ago. I had a case where um, my client was very badly injured in an automobile accident. She was a back seat passenger. And we were suing the driver in her car for negligent driving that caused the backseat driver, my client, a young woman, caused her, her injuries. So the insurance company would not, they would not um, pay us what we wanted. So we filed a lawsuit against the driver. And at the, uh, the deposition where we get to ask the driver questions, um, it turns out, which we, we learned before even the deposition, that this backseat passenger, this was his girlfriend. Oh. It's like, okay, great. So she told us what happened, and he told us what happened, and we thought that that was the whole truth. So he didn't lie about virtually anything. But then we found out that he had told someone else that during the course of his trip when they were when he was driving that they were having an argument and she actually reached over from the back seat and pulled on the steering wheel to get him to stop now he didn't tell us that he didn't lie we asked him questions what happened and he said she was in the back i was in the front uh, I lost control and I hit the tree, which is true. 
He just didn't tell me the whole story that she reached over and grabbed the wheel. And she didn't tell me that because if she had told me that, we would have never taken the case. So she lied to me. And because of the boyfriend-girlfriend relationship, he thinks that he's just going to say the minimal amount that's necessary because he's still in a relationship with her. But it eventually came out in the courtroom, unbeknownst to me, that she reached over and pulled on the steering wheel. So that case ended up her getting zero because that was her fault. I see, I see. Strange things can happen. You just never, never know. Right. But so that is a piece of information that is verbal. But I assume that if there was any, let's say, written kind of document or, or records, then it should have shown up in the discovery, right? Well, you would think so. But again, I mean, there's a process of written discovery. It's called interrogatories. So we asked the defendant, the boyfriend, what happened? And he wrote down on the paper, um, I lost control of the car and hit a tree, which is true. Yeah. He just didn't fill in the extra part that he lost control because she pulled on the steering wheel. Right, right. So that in written form and in the deposition, here is the defendant in my mind admitting that he lost control of the car and hit a tree. Right. Except for the fact that he had told one other person that we didn't even know existed that he had uh, the situation with her pulling on the steering wheel. And the defense brought that person to court. I and that person testified in court that my client, the girlfriend, pulled on the steering wheel because that's what the driver told her. And so they recalled my client to the stand and she admitted, yeah, I did pull on the steering wheel. And that was the end of the case. Wow. Wow. That's yeah. You, you, you'll never know what might happen in court, huh? Right. So, so that is to do with the male practice. So let's say you go to court and you were able to prove um, that the doctor or, you know, the, the, the other party did not, handle with this that meet the standard of care and then then so then what kind of remedies are you looking for and what are they entitled to well every jurisdiction is different primarily there's two types of recovery in cases where people die the first is what is called the um the compensation to the estate for the loss of the loved one and when a jury is given what we call jury instructions as to how to come up with that amount, they're allowed to consider things like the love and affection between them, um, loss of what is called consortium between a husband and a wife, you know, the loss of sexual contact that no longer will exist because one of them is no longer there. The financial support that was provided, um, the guidance, you know, that was being given by the one who was no longer there. You know, we have situations of uh, children who are, you know, lost, you know, where there's children died. And so then there's the expectation of, of potential income and support from a child, uh, the loss of love, companionship, joy of the parents and having a child and seeing the child go through school and graduate and win awards and dance class and you know, whatever the child might do in his or her lifetime. So there's a big broad category of compensation for the loss. 
and every state is going to have different rules as to exactly what categories there are that can be included. Then there is another possibility, and it's called survivorship. Survivorship, which is more often, um, you know, specifically to uh, address uh, things like income loss. And there is actually a third. I said there were two, but there is actually a third. And the third is um, conscious pain and suffering. So if you've got someone that accidentally, you know, fell off of a building, there's going to be 10, 15, 20 seconds before they meet their, meet their maker when they hit the ground. And so they're aware they're falling and they could, you know, they could have a heart attack while they're falling because they're afraid of what's going to happen when they hit the ground. So there might be compensation for the individual who died to compensate for pain and for suffering short as it may be. We see this, we see these type of awards in what we call a burn cases where somebody has been burned badly, let's say by water or by fire or by chemicals where they're conscious for a long period of time, months, while the rehabilitation and the skin grafts and the ointments are being applied and they can't move. And every time they move, it hurts because of the burns. The, the conscious pain and suffering of those type of cases can be enormous, uh, you know, if they don't survive or if they pass, either way, those, those elements are there and they could be very, very uh, high in terms of compensation. Before we continue, I would like to take a moment to thank one of our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Lawyer.com. Lawyer.com is an advanced lawyer matching service. Users can find what they need by either calling a referral expert or fill out a referral form or search a comprehensive directory of over 2 million lawyer listings. For a free consultation, please visit our website at youcanwinin.com forward slash lawyers. Talk about the medical malpractice, and then it seems that the car accident is a, a different kind of situation. So you said it's more about fault. You know, yes. would you elaborate? Well, sure. Let's suppose I'm a drunk driver and I drive off the, uh, the road um, and I kill myself. That's my fault. I can't make a claim against anybody. On the other hand, let's suppose that I'm stopped at a red light and somebody's going 150 miles an hour and slams into the back of my car and sends my car into oncoming traffic where another car hits and kills me. That's the one who hit me. That's his fault. The one from behind going 150 miles an hour. So we're then able to make a claim against that person and their insurance company for their auto insurance liability for a claim for what we call, again, wrongful death. So what happened if the insurance company, uh, if, if they don't have insurance? If they don't have insurance, we can potentially look at my, at the client's own automobile insurance. We have something called uninsured motorist. So if somebody causes an accident, and they don't have insurance, we can use our own insurance policy to provide compensation just as if our own insurance company was the other person's company. And many people often are very confused because they don't want to use their own insurance. They say, well, it's not my fault. I don't want my insurance, 
you know, having to pay for this. Well, that's erroneous thinking because this is part of the coverage that they get when they insure themselves and pay their premiums. They're buying coverage and protection in case something bad happens. And one of those bad things might be the one who's at fault didn't have insurance. So we always explain that to clients who are concerned about their insurance and using their insurance. I see. So you mentioned that it is about fault. So let's say you have a situation where person A hit the person B and then the person B die. Um, what if the person A um, was maybe suffering a heart attack and lose control of their car? So that's not a fault situation, right? That's Would that correct. still fall into a wrongful death? Um, no, it wouldn't. Um, this is what in the law here is called an act of God. So if a person has a heart attack and they had no reason to believe that they had any issues with their heart and all of a sudden, oh my goodness, a heart attack and they kill somebody, that is an act of God. But many times we have situations where this person has a long history of heart issues and they should be taking medication to control the heart problems and we find out they were not taking their medication. And so then it's their fault. The same thing with like a seizure. You know, you have somebody who has seizures and they have medication to make sure they don't have seizures. We find out that they were not taking their medication and they had a seizure which caused the accident. That's going to be their fault. I see. So yeah, when it comes to a motor accident, it's about proving the yes. situation. Yes. Yes. And is it similar to malpractice where we have a whole discovery period and then it's a jury trial, that kind of thing? So. Well, yes. I mean, again, anytime you go into a courtroom and say that, you know, I was wronged, you have to prove it. Let's, let's take a real simple example, an automobile collision at, a, at an intersection. And one person claims that they had the red light and the other person claims that, you know, that they had the green light. So unless we have a photo or a camera on the street corner or an independent witness, nobody's going to win that case, even though somebody had a red light and somebody had a green, somebody ran the red light. But if you can't prove it, you're out of there. I see. I see. And then the, the other thing is about wrongful death is that the person um, have gone. So it's the families that is going after these cases. Yes. Do they have to go through a process to prove that they are entitled to going after the cases? Absolutely. I imagine it has to be listed in their will or something. Well, you know, yes, maybe some people don't have a will. And every state has a different rule and different laws about who is considered to be the beneficiaries. So I've actually had a case where a young man here in the United States, he was coming in, you know, he was here legally in the United States on a work visa from El Salvador. And he was killed in an automobile accident we had to do some research because the only person that he had here in the United States was an uncle who lived in another state. And we eventually found the uncle and the uncle said, yes, he has parents who live back in El Salvador. So when we found out that he had parents, those are the people who were able to recover 
compensation for the fact that this young man was killed. He didn't have a will. Let's suppose that someone does have a will. And in the will, it says that, you know, I have a wife and three children. But child number one, I don't like this child. So no matter what happens, this child will never get any money from me. Well, that would be a debate. They wouldn't get money directly, but that child still might be able to recover compensation. And again, that's a fight that takes place after the fact. So there's all measure of possibilities as to who would re be entitled to recover and how much. Sometimes, as an example, the spouse gets a third and children get two thirds divided equally. Then you have somebody like uh, with no family, so his parents might get money if they're alive. And if there's no family, no, 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 no spouse, no children, no grandparents, maybe an uncle or a cousin might be entitled. So again, these are things that have to be investigated and proven. As an example, if my best friend were to die, I would not be entitled to any money. I have no familial relationship. Um, in today's world, um, in some situations before the law was passed several years ago, um, same-sex marriages, there were often fights before that law was passed about whether a same-sex partner was entitled to recover for the loss of their partner. And some states' laws said no. But then, as you know, the national legislation made it a federal law that, you know, same-sex marriages are illegal. So in the event a spouse dies, the partner would be entitled to recover. So you mentioned that this is something that has to be decided after. Do you mean after the court case, after it's already decided that there was, there was damages to be recovered? Well, it's usually, you know, it usually is after, but it doesn't mean it couldn't be done in advance. You know, again, I mean, it, it, it's, there's no absolute way and rules and outline that it has to be one, two, three, four, and it can never change. You know, you might have a very, you might have a situation where, you know, someone dies and they don't have a spouse, but they have three children. And child number one and number two say, you know what, child number three really didn't even know our father. You know, she's only one year old. Didn't even know her father. So child number two and child number three say, we should get most of the money. And child number one should get, you know, a very small amount. All right, well, it might be that by the time we figure it out, you know, they agree to split it, you know, um, uh, 40, 40, and 20. Or, you know, something. I mean, you know, but again, then you'd probably have a lawyer for the one-year-old fighting to get the, the one-year-old more. So that could be done in advance. And sometimes you get a verdict and there's the money and then you have to decide after and the money is just held until we agree. And sometimes we can't agree. So we have to go back to court and let a judge decide who, who gets what amount of money and what percentage. I see. Okay. So we talk about the negligence in terms of medical practice and we talk about automobile accidents. What about, you mentioned early on about situation that happened at work and it would be a worker comp situation. So is that a case like that, would that be automatic because there's no determination of fault or negligence here? Right, fault is not a consideration in workers' compensation. But let's suppose you have somebody who is 50 years old who dies 
again, the compensation is realistically going to be limited to the amount of money that person would have made during their natural expected work life. So then you could have a fight. Let's suppose that person was smoking cigarettes their whole life and was expected to live until 65. But then you have an exact situation where they were not smoking and they were people that are always in the gym and they led a very healthy lifestyle. And, you know, their doctor said that they were really the age of 35, even though they were really 50, they were so healthy. So they would expect to live until 85. These are kinds of things that go into the decision by what's called a commissioner to award damages. I see. So it's not always 100% cut and dried. I see. And how long would these type of cases go for? I imagine there's a long process. Every case is different. I mean, you know, it's just cases can get resolved in six months. And I've seen other cases take four or five years. Wow. It just depends on all the parties involved and all the issues. So every case is different. And how does it work in terms of the legal fee? Is it something that normally the lawyer would take it as a part of, um, you know, if they win the case and they take a part of that, or is it a retainer up front? Most attorneys that I know, in fact, I don't know with any, anybody any, any different. Attorneys typically take a fee, which is a percentage. So as an example, in my office, I take a fee equivalent to one third, 33 and a third percent of any recovery I make up until the time I go to file the lawsuit. So we try and resolve the case by way of settlement out of court first. So if I'm able to do that, and I let's just say get $90,000, my fee is 30,000. But if we go to court, if I have to file a lawsuit and go to court, then I increase my fee to 40%. And the reason for the increase is because there's a lot more work and a lot more time and a lot more expense involved and typically the lawyer pays the expense. So the increase in the percentage. Now in a workers' compensation case, the commissioner sets the lawyer's fee by statute. So in some cases it's 7.5%, in other cases it's 20%, in other cases it's 30%, it depends upon what state. And in some cases the lawyers are required to give the commissioner uh, a statement showing how long they worked, three hours, 10 hours, 150 hours, that can go into the setting of the legal fee for the attorney. I see, I see. So with this sort of cases, because you're taking a percentage, it means that it's really important for you as a lawyer to pick cases that you know that is that are good cases, right? So That's correct. How how would you, because you have to do investigation before you know that, that means that you potentially could be working on all this investigation for nothing. Is that true? It is true. But then again, I'm going to share with you that, you know, again, I'm an attorney of 40 years. So I like to think that my experience is better than, you know, a lawyer of one or two or three or four years. And I know that my own experience has increased year after year. So when someone calls me up the first time and tells me their story, I think I'm pretty good at deciding whether this is something I want to look into and investigate and take on or not. Now that's not to say that sometimes I make mistakes and both ways. And maybe that's my fault. If I take, if I say no to a case that maybe I should have asked some more questions 
And then I would have gone, oh, I didn't know that, and say yes to trying to help that person. But more often than not, it's, it's situations where, you know, I listen to someone's story and I might ask questions and I might do a little preliminary investigation and then I can call them back and say yes or no. You know, I certainly am not going to spend a year of my time and my expenses and putting out money resources to investigate a case if I don't think that there's a pretty good chance that I'll be able to, to help them and recover the expenses that I've laid out for them and then benefit by being the attorney for them to recover a fee as well. So it's an experience kind of thing. And, you know, that's why a lot of people that, you know, get into these situations want to find experienced lawyers. Actually, yeah, you brought up to a very important point about finding a good lawyer and it's about experience, but how do people figure out the lawyer's experience or, you know, and what else should they look out for other than just experience? Well, that's a, that's, a, that's a question I could talk about until Christmas. Um, you know, the first thing that you want to find out is, in my opinion, are you able to reach the attorney? Okay, that's just critical to me. This is a relationship. This isn't just going into a store and putting the groceries on the, uh, you know, on, on the, uh, the line and the cashier rings it up and says that's $37 and you pay and you go buy. You know, five minutes later, you can't even remember if the cashier was a man or a woman. Right. With an attorney, it's a relationship of sorts. It doesn't mean I'm going to dinner at their house every other night. But to me, one of the most important things is when you get to that point, are you able to talk to the attorney with some, you know, with some ease? You know, lawyers can be very busy. You know, you can call and they're in court or they're in a meeting or, you know, they're in a conference. So you can't necessarily expect to hear from, you know, to be able to reach them on the phone at any given time. But one of the crucial questions that I always ask you know, when I'm, or, or describe when I'm telling someone how to look for a lawyer is, will the lawyer give you his or her cell phone number? And then you want to look at experience. You want to look at their website and you want to see, you know, if this is an attorney of one year or three years or five years. And that doesn't mean that young attorneys can't do a wonderful job. Many of them do. As I mentioned to you at the beginning, I have a young man working for me who is sensational. I would put this guy up against any lawyer five or 10 years. The guy is just outrageous, very, very smart, very good with people. But again, experience counts. So one of the things you want to know is, has the attorney gone to court? Have they had this kind of case before? Um, in today's world with social media, let's face it, before you go to a restaurant, you're going to go on to the internet and you're going to find out what the reviews are for this restaurant. Are the, is the food good? What is the prices? Um, what is the, uh, the, the, the reviews say about how you were treated by the waiting, the wait staff and the waiters and you know, the cashiers and the, and the, did the owner come out and ask you if everything is okay? So you're going to look at those things if you're going to go to a nice restaurant. And, you know, I mean, that doesn't matter if you're going to McDonald's or Burger King, but if you're going to a nice place, you're going to read reviews. You are. And you're going to tell other people about your experience afterwards. So on one level, it's word of mouth. It's another on another level, it's about reviews and, and, you know, what people say. You know, if you go and you look at reviews for lawyers or doctors or car repair places, there's plenty of them. And if they don't have a website and they don't have reviews, that doesn't mean they're not good, but then you have to do some more homework. And I also believe in, in you know, the idea of finding a lawyer 
meeting with that person, you know, if you can, and letting them know right up front, hey, listen, I'm going to check out three lawyers, and, you know, you're one of the three that I narrowed it down to. So go in and see if you can meet with the lawyer. I think that's a very telling thing. You know, find out if they're willing to meet with you and at a time that's really, you know, not so inconvenient. You know, come into my office at 7 o'clock a.m. on Saturday. No. You know, meet me in my office at 2 o'clock on Wednesday. Okay, that's fine. And if they can't meet with you, that doesn't mean they're not a good lawyer. You know, maybe that just says they're so busy that this is the guy or the woman attorney you really want. And these are decisions you have to make. I mean, you know, ultimately you have to feel good about the decision you make because hiring a lawyer is an extremely important uh, thing in the processing and the ultimate resolution of your case. Right. So I would assume that with these sort of cases, you would never go in without a lawyer, right? I don't understand. Like, would, would the family ever go in and file a wrongful death case without representation? Like, they would represent themselves? Oh, no, 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 no. You, you have to have a lawyer, yeah. You, you've got to have a lawyer to do that kind of a case, yes. That's, that's, that's not something that the average person is equipped or educated enough to do on their own. I see. Okay. Thank you so much. I mean, that's a lot of amazing information. Um, so why do you do what you do? <laughs> um, you want the you want the short version or the long version? <laughs> it's up to you. You can actually go to my website and see the answer here, but I'll make it the short version of what you can see on my website. If you go to my website, um, I have a video right there on the home page that says my story. So early on, um, I was someone who always wanted to know why. I think I drove my parents crazy. Why? How come? Why? And a lot of times the answers were not, they didn't seem fair. And that just, that just hit me inside as a child. It's like, this, this isn't right. This isn't fair. Well, I guess, I don't remember how old I was, but early enough, I was maybe nine or 10 or 12, our very good friends who are our next door neighbors, there was a fire and their whole house was destroyed. Whoa. And my family, my parents invited their whole family to live with us in our house wow. until they got their house, you know, rebuilt. And one night I was coming down the stairs into the kitchen and all the adults were sitting at the kitchen table and I could hear my next door neighbors, the, the adults, telling my parents how it was not fair because their homeowner's insurance company wasn't paying and wasn't giving them the money to rebuild their house. And boy, I just got so upset. I just felt like that is just not right. The insurance should pay. You know, it wasn't their fault. It was an accidental fire and that's why they have insurance. I guess I was old enough to understand that. It just made me mad. And that was the, that was the final straw, as they say on the camel's back. I always wanted things to be fair and to be right. And now I found some group of people, insurance, that weren't fair. And so it became very easy for me to decide that if I was going to do something in my life for fairness and for justice and for doing things right, I wanted to be a lawyer and fight insurance companies that didn't do what they should do. And that's been my life for 40 years. So it's a long story, but... 
It's a long story, yeah. but that's why I became a lawyer. So you're helping a lot of people. And then you're also an author, and I, I've noticed you have several books. What, what are you I've writing been, about? Well, I wrote two books about the law and making claims and compensation. And I wrote three books about business. I'm also a small business advisor, a small business consultant. Um, you know, one of the things that I've always understood is that you can be the best at what you do, but if nobody knows about you, you can be sitting there all day with nothing to do. So in that, in that understanding, you have to do some things. You have to do what we call marketing. And so I learned how to do marketing. I became what I call a marketing junkie. I'm never going to say I'm an expert. I don't think I deserve that title because there's a lot of things I don't know. But I like to read marketing books and sales books, and, uh, um, and I've read hundreds and hundreds of them. I've gone to lectures and watched webinars, and, and some of the things that I've included in my marketing are concepts that I like to call uh, persuasion. I don't think I manipulate people, but I have learned how to persuade and there's a whole area of psychology of persuading people. So I've read books on the psychology of persuasion. And, you know, that's part of what I do as an attorney. You know, I have to persuade judges and juries. So I like to think that I'm being fair and honest, but, you know, there's ways to say things and things to do to help persuade them to your thinking. And so that also has to do with marketing. So I've developed a side business where I have, over the years, I've had hundreds of individuals who have businesses who have come to me and said, hey, can you help me make my business better? And I have, I have done that. So it's, it's, a, it's a joy. It's a real joy to help somebody go from point A to point B. So you, you talk about the psychology of persuasion. Is, does that apply to, because when I think of marketing, I'm thinking of the broader public, you know, instead of one-to-one -one conversation. I mean, does it apply to the mass market marketing? Absolutely. I mean, you know, again, um, I don't know if you, uh, your audience have ever listened to television commercials for, for lawyers. Hi, I'm Lawyer Joe, and I, you know, I represent people who've been in an accident. Call me at, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, right? Well, I think that's, you know, and, and then and they'll say something like, oh, in the last, uh, you know, five years, I've gotten 10 verdicts of over $6 million. Um, I really care about you. I really care. Call me. I'm going to help you. Well, I don't think that's a very good advertisement for a lawyer. I call that a me, me, me ad. I care. I'm great. Call me. Me, me, me. I don't like that. I get on TV and I advertise. I admit that I do that. I have to do it. I think it's an important thing to make legal services available to the public. But my ads don't say I'm great or I care. My ads show people by way of things like testimonials and things that I've done in the community that I'm truly concerned about people's health and their well-being. And at the very end, I'm very subtle. I say things like, and you know, if something bad does happen, I'm happy to try and help you. Give me a call. Very low key. And my ads are very successful. Because I'm not talking me, 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 me. I'm reaching out and putting my arm around you and hugging you through the TV screen and making you feel like, you know, I'm a person of integrity and I'm sincere. One of the main things that we understand as marketers is that people want to do business 
with the people that they know, like, and trust. Now, how can you trust somebody who starts bragging about themselves? How can you even say you know them? But if you get on TV and you, you know, you express things in a way that make you personal and real, that's a heck of a lot closer to know, like, and trust than somebody who tells you they got all these verdicts last year of all this money. Stop bragging. Be real. I mean, that's just a, that's a psychology thing of persuasion that I don't have any, you know, any reason to be embarrassed about sharing, you know, with the public. I, I do that because that is me. And that's what I want to do, help people. But there's a way you can try to do it, you know, with the me, me, me. And there's a way you can do it, which I think is a better way that I do it. I see. And I think one of your book is, is, is about marketing, right? Something about yeah. helping small businesses become successful. Yeah. So what would be, if you were to say, as a, if it's just one actionable takeaway from someone that would read that book, what would you say that should be? The one thing I would say about marketing is kind of just exactly what I just said. There's a hundred things that go into it to make it right, and to do it right. But in today's world, particularly with social media and cameras everywhere, I think if you are not honest, the moment you go over the line and start to try and BS somebody or exaggerate that kind of thing, you've lost them. You've lost them. I think, I think in your marketing materials and your marketing efforts and advertisements, wherever you go, whatever you do, you have to not just try to be, you have to be honest. You have to come off as sincere. They have to see your integrity. That's the very first key. If you're not that, you know, the, the BS is smelled a mile away, you know, and I am no way, you know, someone who, you know, tries to be inappropriate in today's world with men and women. But I think women have a sense that is better than men about somebody who's trying to pull the wool over their eyes or lie to them or exaggerate. You know, I mean, my wife is an amazing woman. And I learned very, very early on that I can't BS her. If, something, if I did something wrong, I'm just going to go say, honey, this is what happened. Because a few times early in my marriage, when I tried to make excuses, she looked at me and she goes, really? She knew. She knew. And it's the same with the consuming public. The consuming public is going to look at that and go, really? But you know what? Even before they say really, they're going to swipe or delete. You don't even get a chance to go and give them their pitch. The moment you're off, you're lying, you're exaggerating, you're, you're, you're giving them a line or BS, case over. That's my, that's my one golden nugget. And then there's a whole bunch more stuff, but, you know, that's, that's another discussion. That is such a good, good advice, you know, authenticity, right, to be yes. true. So that's a great advice. Thank you so much. And for people that wanted to reach out to you, your phone number, I think, is 301-5 million? Yes, 301-500-0000, million. And your website is uh, semicolaw.com? That's correct. And you're going to put that up so people can see it, right? Yes, it's going to be in the show note as well, yes. That's Thank wonderful. you so Thank much you. for being here today.
you are extraordinary. I love the questions you asked. Highly intelligent woman. Thank you so much. And I really appreciate you having me on. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you have any questions or suggestions, please let us know. And if you find value from our program, please subscribe, share, and leave a review. You can also support us by becoming a patron. The link to our Patreon page is on our website at youcanwinin.com. Stay wonderful. Please note that the discussions here are not intended to substitute for legal advice. Please seek the advice and help from a lawyer regarding any legal matters.